I'm really excited to share this episode with you all. If you're a regular viewer of our channel, you know a lot about my dad by now, but there is kind of a little hole, a gap, if you will, in his personal history that we've almost never spoken of, and we're addressing it fully today. And that is the years of his life spent as a musician in a band in the 70s. And there's a lot of things in this conversation I didn't even know. I grew up knowing this was a part of his life and just a, a huge part of who he was. And when the band's not there, you're not in a band anymore. So I heard him play his trombone and I knew he was really musical, but kind of never really got to experience that myself. Well, this discussion is with John Brand, who was one of his bandmates. John played the bass, and they've known each other for a long time. John is a fan of the channel. He's watching our Spec House series and enjoying it. He's got a lot of experience in other interesting topics that we didn't get to. He's a landscape designer, architect of some sort. I, I could be getting that wrong, and I hope to have him back someday to talk about landscaping because that's kind of a fun topic as well. But this is more fun, and we're talking about basically the whole story of their band from beginning to end, and we've cut in some music um, from the band that I will that will come and go at times, so you can kind of hear a little bit of the sound. At the end of the interview, we're going to play a few songs of theirs just beginning to end in a row so that you can really hear how neat the music is and unique. And by that time, after hearing this this interview, you should have a pretty good idea of what you're listening to. You'll be able to hear my dad playing and John as well. I couldn't be more pleased to share this conversation with you. It was really fun. This is a little different than our regular topics, and I'm grateful for that because that, that's part of the reason we wanted to do this podcast was to spread out our, our borders a little bit on what's kind of fair game, and, and this is a nice step in that direction so without any further ado this is john brand bass player of the jazz miners with my dad scott wadsworth trombonist of the jazz miners Thanks, John, for coming on the show. This is, for me, exciting. I've heard about you for my whole life, more or less, and why am I getting to Well, and it's just, it, it's so much fun watching the channel, loving the spec house going up, in awe of what you guys, when you came out, that big announcement, oh, and it was just, really? Have you lost your mind? <laughs> <laughs> and, and then to see it go from all the... It's just incredible. It's. I'm sure I speak for everybody. We're just wow. So you you guys just came from the spec house. We just came. We, we just we, came we were Romulitos, okay, and then we came to the spec house, and now we're here. So what? As someone who's seen the videos and has been to the house, uh -huh. what's the what stands out as what? What might the viewers be missing that doesn't come through the TV? The two the two things, the size, because so much of what you're doing is showing us the detail of how things are installed. And Scott's talking about very, not minutiae, but just, you know, yeah. stuff that we as sure. laymen would never know. The stuff your hands are on. Yeah. And then and then the, the exterior shots, you know, you're doing some nice stuff, you know, further away and, and stuff like that, but you just don't get really the size of the project. And then when we were up there, Scott took me around to the front because okay. he had told me, 
many times he was like, I don't know how I'm supposed to do that height. <laughs> yeah. And and when you see it on the the video, it doesn't look like that. And then we st- turned that corner and put our heads up yeah. and went, oh, yeah. I would not do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what you're talking about is basically the distance from the ground of the lot downhill uh-huh. to yeah. the top of the peak because of our house. Because there isn't much room between... Yeah. The face no. of your house and and there. I mean, it's. I had no idea. So it's a classic thing that that vertical distance is always fifty percent greater measured from the top than measured from the bottom, right? When oh. you're up there looking down, <laughs> it's a long stinking ways, yeah. and from the bottom looking up, oh yeah, that's up there. But but that thing when you're standing there with the rocks and the wall and the yeah, it's yeah. A, it's a waste. No, I, I had I had, and I and I thought I had kind of when because you had told me about it a bunch and how you had really just like oh my gosh what am i going to do and and i in my mind kind of downplayed it oh sure. you know how it's a house build how it tough, yeah how tough can that uh-huh. be but then when you look at it you go oh geez what were you thinking yeah. <laughs> i kind of forgot while filming myself i'm i kind of drive up to it and i forgot to shoot a lot of like far away shots mm-hmm. and look when i was editing i started realizing i should have started every day with a shot like kind of back oh. up and then zoom in because it would yeah. kind of almost even define the day themselves because sometimes a guy will be working on a spot and then all of a sudden like his clothes change and it's like oh there's no there's a new day yeah, that's yeah. true yeah and i i kind of for- lost track myself of like giving the viewers that perspective i just became so accustomed to oh, everybody knows yeah. what it's yeah. like here yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well and the first thought that came to my mind i was going to say well you can do that on the next one but yeah. i'm going to counsel you <laughs> maybe don't do a next one <laughs> <laughs> thanks for the guidance man <laughs> yeah, you should have told us that before this one <laughs> <laughs> well you you guys just i remember that big announcement and and thought it was a brilliant move for your channel because you you all of a sudden you've got well a lot yeah. more years content. of content that you probably didn't even realize you'd have that much so mm-hmm. it, it made sense but yeah that had to have been a, a daunting there must have been moments where it was wow there's been plenty of those yeah and and frankly we're, they're not all behind us right well well, yeah, I guess you're right. But, yeah. but still, just, most of them are behind. I was going to say, just walking yeah. through it, you kind of go, well, I'm almost getting to maybe sort of the fun part. Yeah, oh, it so, is. Yeah, it so, is. Yeah. yeah. So, really, what we are, what I'm hoping to talk about is is your band, and this is going to be more <laughs> of a historical sort of. Um, uh, what's the term for memory lane? A memory lane kind of uh-huh. a thing. Uh, that's I, the memories, right? But I well, think it will be interesting for the listeners because this is kind of a part of. I don't know, the 70s that I certainly, there's, there's not a lot of attention drawn to this kind of little no. m- piece of music and culture. In the 70s, for sure. Well, and, and two, and, and, and I'm thrilled that we're doing this because so much of the time when I watch your dad on the, the, the channel and he's talking and doing all this stuff, I want to go, yeah, but tell him that you played at the White House for the president. <laughs> I think they would like that, you know? So, so getting... Kind of seeing him from a different side is yeah. great. Yeah. Is great. Yeah, by the way, so John and I did play at the White House in 1977 <laughs> for President Carter, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yes, we did. Yeah. Yes, we did. So oh. maybe to start at the beginning, first of all, you guys are the same age, I take it, or at least within You're a one few year, years. You're one year, two years? I think I was born in 57. Uh, 58, yeah. Okay, so yeah, one you're year. you're always much older than yeah. me. Yeah. So <laughs> you're, you're a kid in the 60s, really, and then kind of a teenager, adult in the yeah, 70s. correct. So you're kind of straddling those two generations. And the 60s were obviously mega cultural turmoil and change yep. and yep. technology. Yep. And then 
the seventies, um, what was that like, I guess, kind of as high school and moving into this in the seventies? Well, that, the funny thing is, is for me now, and I think Scott's probably different, but I grew up, you know, watching Beatles cartoons, you know, yep. I wanted to be Paul McCartney, you know, that, that was what I wanted to do. And yep. so all of the, my, all of my musical experience, almost all of my musical experience was either classical music in orchestras, you know, in junior high school and high school or listening to the radio. So the rock and roll and all of that stuff was just so huge. It just yeah. overwhelmed the music scene. That's what it all was, except Dixieland Jazz had a huge following. There was a resurgence yeah. in the seventies, right? And, and and so so until I learned about it, I didn't know a thing about it. But once we got exposed to it, there was this massive amount of popularity in the older generation. Obviously, they liked swing. They liked sure. you know standards. They liked bebop, all that kind of stuff. That had kind of superseded Dixieland, but. Boy, was there a huge amount of people and bands mm -hmm. from all over the world playing Dixieland Jazz. So the festival thing was just spinning up. Yes. The Dixieland Jazz, traditional jazz festival, was just spinning up about the time that we showed up with our little band. Well, I think I think the Dick, the Jubilee in Sacramento, which turned out to be the godfather monster of all Dixieland festivals mm -hmm. in the world, mm -hmm. I think 73 was their first one, first and ours, ours was 75. Yeah. So we were in, you know, that, first third, couple of that years. third year. So the Breda Festival in Holland, right? right. I don't know much about that. I George Probert either. did that. Yeah. But I think that spun up right on the heels or about contemporary. There, there was just a thing. There was a Western Western world a rekindling of interest in the music of the nineteen, uh, the teens, the 20s, twenties, and then fading out in the thirties. There was a little boost in the forties in uh, Northern California. Turk Murphy, Lou Waters. There was a West Coast jazz resurgence, and then it kind of bubbled up again in the seventies. Yeah, yeah. And so in the seventies, this is the. This is not like the young kids getting into it. This is the adults and the, correct, the, the correct. older generation who there, is kind of like. There were, into it. at least to my knowledge, there were no young people playing. Max I'm sure. Collie. Remember those stringy yeah. hippies? Okay, they were 30. Yeah. Weren't they 30? Well, probably. Max Collie and the, and and his the rhythm, rhythm Aces. Rhythm yeah. Aces from England. Yeah. Their bass player came to the Jubilee that first year and he brought. Yeah. Two pairs of underwear and his toothbrush. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Fingers Williams on the bass. Ooh, nice. But um, but so it was thirty and forty year olds that were kind of that jumped in and started playing. Yeah, yeah. Black Eagles and stuff. Yeah, Rosie O'Grady's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. And there, there were like the traditional Jazz Society of Oregon, which is what formed our group. There were many of those all over yep. the country, dozens and dozens, bubbling up, d doing doing very very well. So, so that was in maybe walk through that. What do you mean that the, they formed your group and maybe kind of walk through how so, you guys? So they as, didn't as quite. Kids. So Phil Styers, Rusty Styers' dad, was on the board of the traditional Jazz Society of Oregon. Yeah, I think so. And they had a declared sort of. Uh, as one of their as their charter, they had a declared interest in fostering an interest in jazz among yeah, kids. Among kids, and fortunately, uh, uh, Phil's son Rusty, they lived out fairly secluded. He had kind of a sort of a not nomadic, but I mean semi. He was sort of reclusive out there in yep. the. So Quite he a ways out. he spent all his time listening 
to rusty to, yeah rusty as Lu- a young kid yeah listening to lewis armstrong listening to the hot five because his parents both played with the emerald city jazz right. band so so as he's learning all of these songs and he's learning how to play like louis armstrong he's getting the opportunity to jam with his parents band mm-hmm. he's getting a chance to probably sit in at some of those early tjso like sixth things. grade and seventh grade right yeah. right oh that's a really good and a yes. prodigious talent well and and that was just it because and he's playing the trumpet Right. Correct. Whatever you're passionate at, mm-hmm. you're going to yeah. do over and over again, and that's how you get talented. So that was how Rusty did. That's how he happened to become so good. And the same with the banjo player, Brad Roth. He lived north of Corvallis, loved the playing of the famous Eddie Peabody mm-hmm. plectrum banjo style. So he just practiced, 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 because there really wasn't a whole lot to do out in the country, you know, that kind of a thing. And his father was encouraging him. He played on the gong show. Yes, he did. He, he got some national recognition. He did the, playing on a the, national, the Mickey Mouse Club. The Mickey Mouse the Club. The new Mickey Mouse Club. As a 12, 13-year-old, yeah. another prodigious talent. Oh, wow. crazy, crazy good. Yeah. Do you think that music was kind of bigger back then than it is now? Yeah. De- live def- music. De- live music, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And and it was, you don't see nearly as many bands today. Yeah. It was, mm-hmm. it, there wasn't solo kind of stuff like this is it was all all bands and except for you know sinatra and th- those big huge stars right, but right bands were it whether it was a rock band or whether it was a jazz band so phil was a business agent for the local musicians union local in that Eugene. is correct okay you are right and so so his deal was booking and overseeing the union status yep. of the local bands and there were enough in eugene to support a pretty strong union local that is true that is true. So I'm going to jump and assume that this guy, Phil, who had the great Rusty's dad, yep. son, is like, yeah. I got I to get my son a band of other kids. And is that well, how it got put together? No, it was a, it was really Rusty. Rusty did it, Rusty man. had, he had this desire, passion, and drive. He wanted to put a band together. Like in seventh grade. Yeah. Uh. And so even though he was... He was still fairly shy. He had a, he had enough passion to do this where he would contact people or he would I, I found out from Mark last night that Dale and Rusty were in junior high school together. Yeah. So that was where he kind of picked up our drummer, Dale Dial, from 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 that. And then and then he went to Thurston High School and he picked up Mark Curry on the reeds and he picked up Two other guys, two older brothers in the first iteration of the band. Oh, I th- think there were actually more. I think there were actually four of yeah. them. Yeah, the, Ro- the Robel brothers. Robel brothers, yeah. But they were like into rock and stuff. So they did it for a little bit, and then they were, yeah, we're not doing this. And yeah. so, so it kind of fell apart. He also had found this gal from Junction City, a piano player. Fifteen. And yeah, and a bear, kind of a barrel house blues singer uh, named Lori Moritz, and uh, she was, gosh, she was so much fun because she she just had this effervescent wit and this joy, and she used all of that to make people feel comfortable because she was born blind. She was blind, born blind, born blind. and she can she dominated the keyboard yeah. and sang like she was forty years old. Yeah, it was, and 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 it was so cool because I hadn't. I don't think I'd ever met anyone who was blind. Mm-mm. So when I first met her, there's that sort of uncomfortable, kind of yeah, like, okay, yeah, how am yeah. I supposed to act? Yeah. And she she, she had a sense out. of humor, like she was one of the guys, and wow. she fit in, and everybody immediately became just fiercely protective of her. Yeah. Just and, and, and think of what that did. So you, you have a, a crowd of people at the Traditional Jazz Society of Oregon 
this seventh, eighth grade boy had put together a band, including this marvelously talented, darling young woman, blind piano player, singer, a 12 year old kid who couldn't hardly pick up a banjo, but once he got it in his lap, he just completely crushed it. Rusty's playing about at 70% of the level of Louis Armstrong, and yeah. he's in eighth grade at this point. Yeah, wow. And the rest of us showed up, and we're kind of doing okay. We're learning. So how, how did you guys get linked up then with Rusty and his... Well... So I was down here in Roseburg, quite a ways south from Eugene. Uh -huh. And, you know, a, a traditionally much more conservative... And you're also out outside of Roseburg. Yeah, way out. Lied, like, yeah. way out in the Cascade Mountains. I And I was hunting and fishing and and playing in the high school band, and that was it. And then Neil Hart, who was a local storekeeper, who also was a mentor to me as a carpenter. Oh, You may not have known this, John, but Neil Hart, oh. when high school kids would come into the Dixonville store, he would say, you're taking algebra, right? Yeah. He'd throw down a quadratic equation and say, solve that. Whoa. Okay? Neil would engage with you. Wow. And he played the drums with the Oregon Jazz Band, and he knew my mom played piano, and, and, and he told her, Lorraine, there's a kid's band in Eugene Springfield looking for a trombone player. I think Scott ought to do it. <laughs> and then he told Phil, who told Rusty, and Rusty called me, and so I went up there to audition. Well, what, what was your level of tromboning at that point? Because in a high school band, you're not playing Dixieland Great question. Jazz. No, you're not. I had been taking some lessons, and I had gotten some. My technical ceiling was decent. I'd gone to state solo and ensemble contests, and I could play better than maybe let's say, 85% of high school trombonists. But were you interested in Dixieland jazz? Only because I'd grown up playing with mom, all right, and she had kind of had a jazz-type church pianist, you know, so I was oh. aware of what improv was and playing by ear. Okay. And I had been listening to Oregon jazz band recordings since I was just a pup, so I had that music kind of imprinted oh. in yeah. the back of my mind, and I had had an interest, and I had false started a couple times trying to put a little band together at Glide of the guys in the band, and oh. so I was hungry to do that. Okay. I wanted to play. Okay. So I went up there, auditioned. Oh. I had just been elected student body president when I got up there, and I'd won the Voice of Democracy script writing contest, and Rusty thought, well, he doesn't play very well, but he's apparently <laughs> responsible, so we'll <laughs> give him a try. Yeah. And so he taught me to improvise. How'd it go for you? <laughs> oh, that's so fantastic. <laughs> So I was a super shy all the way until my senior year in high school. So in junior high school, I was so fortunate. Our um, orchestra director, Mr. Royce Lewis, was a string bass player. Oh. He was the principal string bassist in Eugene Symphony. Oh. So there was another bass player named Jeff Braditich. I remember and, that name. And I. Jeff has turned into one of the finest classical string bassists on the planet really I mean, and it was apparent even back then so mr lewis just was like okay you guys are going to do the uh, all district solo contest well what was i i couldn't say no to mr lewis sure so practicing scared out of my wits you know and then oh i auditioned you guys for the all state orchestra and you uh, you both are in push, all push, northwest push. orchestra yeah sure. it was just oh my gosh so when i was in the ninth grade he comes to me, that's when ninth grade was still junior high school. He said, you know, at Churchill, where you'll be going to high school next year, right now there's some seniors, they want to put a Dixieland band together. I don't have a bass. I think you should do it. So I, shy 
as I was, it's like, I'm okay, I'm doing Hard it. Hard to believe you were shy, but I remember when you were shy. Yeah. Yeah, I can't. So, um, so I went to that first rehearsal, scared out of my... Gord never played Dixieland jazz sure. before. What but, does this mean? Yeah, but it's, you know, I think they were chord charts or something. Sure. You know, so you just yeah. read them. And, right. and so the first the first gig I played, we had the, the what's the barbershop society, Spebsqua. The, the Society for the Preservation and Encouragement of Barbershop Quartet Singing in America, Spebsqua. Spebsqua. So they had a, an event called Singiness Nights of the Year. Yeah. I, th- I think it was at the Eugene Hotel, maybe. Probably. And we played the intermission. That was my first gig. I think I made... 10 bucks or something. I thought, oh my gosh, I'm a professional musician. Yeah, yeah. At 15 or whatever. (laughs) Anyway, so fast forward to right after Rusty had gotten a hold of you, he had heard about Jeff. Uh Uh-huh. And wanted Jeff. Huh? He wanted Jeff, so he was reaching for him. And the funny thing, can you imagine that? He called up Mr. Lewis. Just... Cold called. Yeah. Hi, my name is Rusty Styers. That's I'm, what he did to me too. Yeah. I'm the trumpet. Pl- I'm a trumpet yeah. player. I'm putting this yeah. band together. I was wondering if Jeff would be interested in playing bass, and Mr. Lewis kind of laughed and said, "Well, Jeff doesn't play classical or doesn't play jazz. Never has has no interest. And he didn't. Except he goes, but but." I have another bass player who actually has Dixieland jazz experience that, you know, a couple of years with the Red Hot, Red Hot Mamas yeah, was the name of the band. So I got the call from Rusty. Okay, well, all right. And if I hadn't been so shy, I might have said no. Yeah, but, I was, but you couldn't say but no. But I was so shy. <laughs> you I didn't still want... have problems with that. <laughs> yes, exactly. I didn't want to disappoint anybody. Yep, yep. So, so, so let, let me step in for just a second. Okay. If I have this right, he yes. came to the first rehearsal. From from West Eugene to deep, dark, southeast Springfield, like probably 25 miles, uh-huh. okay, with a three-quarter size string bass on his, on his, was that a full-size bass? Nope. Nope. Wasn't on your back on the moped? Nope. Oh. You're close. Come on. You're close. I had a frame pack that I had my electric bass. An electric bass. With my amp. Oh Bunching to the back of my little Honda 125 motorcycle. Okay, all right. Put, put, and, put, 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 put. and to make matters worse, so Dixieland musicians. Oh, just a and, second. With a ponytail, he had this long stringy. Come on. No, nope, not me a up. not a ponytail. Oh. But I had hair down to my right. down to my shoulders. Say, it could have put it in a ponytail. Yeah, I could have. So the everybody else in the band is very conservative you know rural all that stuff yeah, so much. we're getting together for that first meeting and in i come with yeah. an electric bass which is a huge <laughs> oh, no-no in yeah, dixieland yeah. jazz but i didn't have my own string bass and that's l- right and long hair and <laughs> everybody just looked on brad's trad jazz today thing he said yeah, we thought this isn't going to work. This won't work. <laughs> yeah, this dog won't hunt. Now, to be fair, everyone was so nice to me. Yeah. They were just so great. And a couple of things happened within the first six months of the band. My Mr. Lewis allowed me to take out one of the Churchill string basses oh, yeah. to all the rehearsals and Jubilee and all. I mean, he was fantastic. And I got the male vocal lead in Hello, Dolly. And the director said, you only get it. If you cut your hair, and I went, oh, wow. I remember. Right. So one day I went from here to here and went, <laughs> this is fantastic. It's so easy to take. Why haven't I had short hair? <laughs> okay, now just a second. Okay, but you did drive a motorcycle with a, with your string bass on your back across town, didn't you? Or have I just got that wrong? No, it's just the electric bass. Oh. Yeah, I, that would have been in. But deep, with the deep amp, trouble. is kind of like it was pretty funny. Yeah. It was pretty 
hilarious but but that's you do it you know you do what you yeah, can do yeah. but it was so great because mr lewis let me borrow bass and then my senior year that would have been 75 our first concert was new year's morning on 1975 at that whatever that hotel out by coburg remember that it's the, it's no. gone now it was that was like a two-story okay. thing and we played new year's day that was our first gig and then I, and then my grandparents actually bought me a very the bass that I had. I today. remember when you got the new bass. Oh, yeah. Still got it. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. got some miles on it. Yeah, oh, big cool. big time, big time. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna play some of this some of your music after this question, but before I do, how would you describe Dixieland jazz versus some type of jazz that the listeners might be thinking of? And okay. can, you know, and then we'll then we'll let people listen to it. So themselves. I, I mentioned you, you I, have a good. Description. I, I mentioned this on on a, a vlog we did, but Dixieland jazz is polyphonous improvisation. That means you have multiple instruments all improvising simultaneously. But the difference between Dixieland jazz and a more modern or progressive type of jazz is everyone is more or less staying in their lane. They're following a specific chord progression using sort of the, the, the less obscure elements of the chord. Not a lot of thirteenths, not a lot of ninths, not a lot of, of, the, of the obscure portions of the chords which are actually dissonant but have a prevalent role in, in newer jazz. And everyone sort of has a role that is, that is uh, congruent with the style. And everybody honors that. It's kind of like it's reproduction music almost, except it's new each time. You're kind of restoring an automobile and making it just as nice as you can, except with your own interpretation of color and texture. And and the other thing is, and Mark Curry mentioned this to me, is that it's contrapuntal, especially on the front line. You know, the, the trumpet, trombone, clarinet, or soprano sax on the front line they're trading lines and they're leaving space for each other so it's kind of point and counterpoint and point and counterpoint and it becomes a musical conversation ideally while the rhythm section is kind of staying in their line doing their job with full range of creativity as long as it is sort of hues to the line right yeah. and is yeah. congruent with the style I knew you have a good description <laughs> yeah didn't I so tell you Rusty was the real t super talent and also the Brad uh, and also Brad yeah but what, what happened over time because I'm I'm guessing you can't have a jazz band contrapuntal whatever without with only one that's right. star, right? That's right. Yeah. You can't actually yeah. do that. That's right. And and fortunately, as we developed and got better and got more accolades and all that stuff, that first year at uh, the Jubilee in '75, they just treated us like royalty because yeah. we were the only kids. So it really fired our enthusiasm to put the work in. So mm -hmm. it became almost almost every weekend we would. It was every weekend. We would man. get there on a Friday night. We would rehearse super late at the Styers, Phil and Jan. Yeah, sleep wow. in, eat a huge breakfast, rehearse all the way until dusk, and then go home wow. Sunday with the family. And, and so we we put the time in. So we started to get better. And John got better faster than most of the rest of us because he had a higher technical ceiling to begin with. Okay, he had good facility. Um, Mark and I, I would were, dispute that. But. Well, Mark and I were pretty evenly matched on the front line. Well, what I mean, did Mark play again? Um, reeds. Oh, yeah, okay. clarinet and soprano sax yeah, typically. Yeah. And and I'll just throw this out that stepping into the genre, Mark came playing alto sax primarily, and then picked up soprano because that's that's the niche. I mean, an alto is not really that welcome in a real trad band. Interesting. A Dixieland band, yes. A trad band, not so much. Hmm. And then after he kind of got the soprano down, he stepped over to clarinet. So, so um, Mark and I were fairly evenly matched, and we're sidemen to this brilliant player, 
which kind of worked because in the Louis Armstrong style, as compared like to King Oliver, which was another New Orleans style, the trumpet is the star and everybody's backing him up. And so it wasn't until we began to, to kind of catch up and actually learn to play something that sounded good oh. and actually learn to play with some soul and interpret the songs appropriately and find our space, then we could begin to kind of not just carry water for Rusty, but make our own moves. And in the back, you and Brad and Dale and first Lori and then Tim Klein, yep. which she couldn't hang, yep. were, were developing a really great rhythm section sound. Very cohesive, yeah. very tight, yeah. very inventive. It was interesting when you say that because I remember one of my memories was maybe about six months in, and I don't remember where we were playing, but Phil was running the, the soundboard. I remember this. And and he he... he something you did with Mark and Rusty contrapuntally with, and he's like, they're figuring this out. He, he looked up. I remember he looked up, his eyebrows kind of went up, he got a big smile, and I thought, okay, that felt about right. Yeah, mm. and I remember him saying that later. Yeah. He said, they're figuring it out. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was kind of that, you, yeah. you jumped over yeah. that hurdle. You probably yeah. started listening to a lot more jazz once this started. You're like listening to it when you're at home and everything. That's well, the key. And, and remember... No computers, no internet, no yeah. nothing. So we, if if you had a if you had a record, you were listening to that record over and over. Yeah. And I I think Rusty maybe made cassettes. He for started us. making cassette tapes because we, we needed to take them home and start to listen to him. He had made these little we called them head charts, which was kind of a roadmap of the song, but it wasn't the song written out by any stretch of no. the imagination. Yeah. So you had to know it to be able to follow the roadmap. So there was that learning curve. There's a funny picture. I think that first. Jubilee, we had these, and and Rusty didn't want to have music stands. Remember, he right. didn't want to have that because it would block the. It was he was so he was so about right it. on. Yes, he was, he was right yes, on. So there's a picture of us playing somewhere where we've all got our books on the floor, we're playing to and the floor. we're all looking yeah. down. It's just yeah. like, oh, that's so weird. But that was the level we had. That was yeah. the best that we could do. Yeah, you know? that's yeah. right. And so. it's it's better to do that as opposed to get yes. used to a music stand. Oh, you'll never get off. of you it. You never get off. So yeah. to your your question about listening. If anybody out there is interested in learning to play jazz, probably of any kind, but certainly tradition, you know, any kind of improvisational style, you have to listen. First of all, you have to learn to listen while you're playing, because if you can't, if you get totally absorbed in what you are doing, you're going to derail the train. You have to be able to listen to everyone else simultaneously while you're creating the music. Not impossible, but hard. But the way you do that is by listening to other bands and other players and identify somebody whose sound you like and then listen and say, what, wait, what did he just do? Mm -hmm. And listen to it again, listen yeah. to it again. Figure and it out. It, yep. Figure it out. Now you own that lick. Now you do it in another key and another key. And so listening is the only way to learn this. So why don't you describe a little bit what that tour across the U.S. was like and how that came to be. John and, has a journal. And maybe the, <laughs> you know, the mechanics of that. Oh, my gosh. So, so after... So in 75, we did the Jubilee. That was the first one, and that was Baby Steps. Well, by the time... And an album. And an album and in an that album. year. Oh, terrible. Yeah, horrible never listened to it. Oh, it's awful. <laughs> um, so then by 76, the next Jubilee... So I don't remember the gal's name. The first night we were there, I think it was Thursday night, even before the Friday morning parade, we were playing this little club, and this gal was from the Sacramento Bee. She was a music reviewer. Yeah. And she wrote an article. The crowd was okay. Nobody knew who we were really at that point. But by this time we were off book. So all of our focus is to the audience. Plan to the people. Part of part of the joy of what we did is we we kind of egged each other on. So when Scott's taking a solo, we're 
We're we're looking at him going, yeah, yeah. yeah. You've got all these. You know, we, had rock, six, we had rock and roll intensity and old people music. Sixteen to eight, there's fourteen to eighteen year old boys. Yeah. You know, so there's a ton of testosterone going there. So she she sat back and she wrote an she wrote a review where she said everything moves. She said. And I remember this to this day. She said, John Brand is like a rocket ready to explode. <laughs> yeah. And she, 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 she said, you have to see this band. Wow. And that was the start of it. Yeah. Uh, I, I got to find out her name because that was yeah. so cool. Yeah. So that, that, oh, that cool. Jubilee, we were getting... They were adding concerts. We were supposed to have four in a day. Now we had like six. They were shoehorning us in wherever we could. Yeah. I played with guys in Southern California years later who, when they found out who I was, they said, I got a story for you. We were playing at Straw Hat Pizza. Our set was about half full. About half an hour before our set set ended, the place went, whoo, filled up, packed. The, <laughs> the, the fire marshal had to shut the doors, no more. And they were all going, what's going on? And the audience that was now up against the bandstand said, oh, the jazz minors are next. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so wow, that is cool. Our, our musicality, one to 10, our musicality at that point was about a three on our energy was about a 40. Yeah. Okay. We, <laughs> yeah. we just, and, and it was infectious. People just yeah. loved yeah. Because, that. Because most of the bands, really virtually all the bands, one, they're not, they weren't young, but two, it's a very, um, sedentary. Yeah, well, everybody sits and oh, plays, especially originally from the twenties and thirties, yes. where they're yep, wearing yep, yep. suits. Oh yeah, coats right. and, it's, and, bow ties. and so so this was not that. This was a rock and roll band mentality right. playing Dixieland jazz. Yeah, that's right. So in answer to your question, so we made that seventy six. We did another album, Hold That Tiger, which was better. Better. Still not good, not great, but better. But better. Yeah. And Rusty we, was great. Brad was great. great. The rest of us were hanging on. Yeah, exactly. So we started to think, okay, what? What's next? And uh, 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 Tony Otten and, Tony Otten. and Sherry Otten were the president and vice president of the Jazz Society. She was a secretary. Secretary, that's right. Um, and so they said, well, what if we contact all of these jazz societies all over the United States for the summer of 77? Maybe we could put together an actual tour. So they started doing that. And sure enough, all these jazz societies, which had heard about us or had seen us at Sacramento, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. They knew who we were, yeah. and they're like, "Absolutely! If they're if they come, we will we will have them there." We got um, we got a, a, a concert at Disney World that actually ended up leading to Disneyland. We got the Big Spiderbecks Festival, which probably might have been the second biggest or third biggest in the U.S. It was a big one. It was a huge one on the banks of the Mississippi River. Biggest audience. Oh gosh, biggest audience. Oh, yeah, that was so. How cool. big was it? You think? Uh, there, they about fifteen to seventeen thousand. Fifteen to seventeen thousand people all, stretched out along all the along the, the bank of the, of the Mississippi, Mississippi River, yeah. and they had this huge nineteen twenties band shell, you know, and it that was is a ton of people. Oh yeah, man, amazing. I'll tell you that's what, amazing. our first concert there, and John's journals got the, these rich, rich descriptions of what happened. But we walked out on this band shell, and we've got these lights on our eyes, and the sun's going down, it's getting dark, and as far as you can see into those lights, it's just people mm -hmm. on blankets and lawn chairs, as far as you can see into the distance. And at the end of the first ta tune, Every person I could see was on their feet with their hands over their head. Mm. Now, what does that do to a 17-year-old yeah. eagle? Yeah. It completely screws it up is what it does. <laughs> well, obviously. Yeah, I mean, look at look what that happened. Yeah. <laughs> I, and that, it, that comes out in some of my journal entries. There, there's a certain arrogance there that leaps off the page. So, so, so that began to form, and then 
about a t- couple of months before we were about around June, I think, middle of June, we were going to do a send-off concert in Eugene yep. and then be gone rest of June, July, August, and into September a little bit. Well, Lori, our piano player, who never really, she wasn't really a Dixieland player. She had a solo career. She, her, she liked Bonnie Raitt. She yeah, was she was, she was that is kind this, of thing. This is not the blind girl. Yes, it is the, blind blind girl, the blind girl. She came to the decision that it would just be too difficult to go on tour. She couldn't go across the country and back with six teenage guys when you're, she was 17 then or yeah, 16, yeah. 17. Now we, we briefly, there was a gal, her best friend, who was at Junction City and then transferred to Churchill. And I knew her, she was in the choir. And there was some talk that maybe she would come she would with the band, which would have been great because we were hitting it off quite a bit. Yeah, so that own, would have been a horrible set of challenges. Oh my God, yeah. it would have been a terrible thing. So here, just a second, here's what we glossed. We glossed President Carter in March. Well, no, no, no. This is part of it. Okay. So what Tony did is he contacted our senator, representative, say, hey, the guys are going to be traveling the United States. They're going to be in the D.C. area in August. Could we get a White House thing? So they tried and tried. They couldn't figure out anything. And it just, it didn't look like it was going to happen. That's right. And then they called Tony in March, I think, and said, hey, we do this um, picnic lunch for the staff on the South Lawn of the White House. I think originally it was like April 29th. It got moved to May 1st. Yeah. That's what it was. Could you come and do that? Well, obviously, now we're going to have to fly out there and pay for that. God bless our parents because they all on our own dime. Uh, they yeah. all paid for it, and it wasn't a paying gig, so huh. there was no nothing there. We weren't going to be in town, you know, stuff. Yeah. But but you don't say no to that, yeah, <laughs> you know. Really. All the parents went, "Yep, here's my check," you know, <laughs> no problem. So yeah, March for, or May first, we flew in. We stayed at the home of um, the Wallers, who I think were the. T- their the jazz society yeah and she had been a secretary to several presidents oh okay see now she, she, she had good. pictures in their basement of her with john kennedy and she had been a staff member at the white house for a okay. long time see that that I, I i don't remember that so we played a, a lunch a lunch out on the south lawn of the white house for the staff nice. and uh boy it was so funny because we're playing long and and we're like well, i wonder when the president will be here or something and tim's playing the piano he's got a little spinet and he's got a little you know little bench and there were reporters six deep you know camera crews all around i mean they were just yeah. it was that, the sounds of the click, 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 click was click. just so funny. Wow. So so Tim looks over, and one of the reporters has put his foot up on his bench and is clapping along, and Tim's kind of like, <laughs> Gutsy. Oh, that's kind of, and so as he looks over to, you know, like, shoo him away, it's the president. It's President, oh, president Carter. He's yeah. like, <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm I'm good with that. <laughs> yeah. So we just looked ahead, looked straight forward, yeah, just, and tried for tone, just right? Keep That's playing, the rule. Just keep playing. So we finished the song, and and the president came up, and he could not have been more genuine. He was more, so generous, so nice. I think originally it was going to be so short that he was just going to have to like shake Rusty's hand, yeah. sort of representative of the band. No, he shook shook every one of our hands. A yeah. uh, little bit of you know banter, small. He talk. said, "I wish that I could say that you are all my children, but I'm too old, so I'll have to say you're all my grandchildren." Oh, see, God, wow. that is so yeah. great. Yeah, I I could totally. He, he was a that. generous, kind, and small. Yeah, guy. he was so, he was not big at all. And then so he posed for some photos and stuff and then he left and then Rosalind Carter his wife the first lady came up and she was equally sweet, genuine, nice. Was just it was it was really cool to yeah. see. So um 
yeah, so then the the all the next day when we got on the plane and flew back, Tim was getting papers wherever he could find them because on the front page of almost every major newspaper, there was either a shot of the president with the whole band or a or shot with of Tim. The, with Tim <laughs> with his leg up, you know, clapping to the music. I mean, New wow. York Times, Washington Post, Chicago Tribune. Yeah. It was just every single paper. Tim, you're on the front page of the Washington Post. <laughs> Tim, Tim was the, the, the young guy from Springfield area who was a great piano player in a more modern and swing type setting. He liked Oscar Peterson and uh, I think George Shearing, those yes. kind of sounds. Yeah. And he, he slipped into the spot that Lori vacated when she realized she couldn't go on the tour with these right, guys. Right, That's and, right. And he came up to speed so fast it, yeah, and he made with, so many within, contributions. Yeah, six weeks but yeah. when he joined the band to when we went to play the White House. Yeah, think of that. Yeah, he did fabulously well. And one of the genuinely uh, nicest people you will ever, yeah, ever meet. Yeah, nice guy. So yeah. are there, separate from what you've mentioned, are there any other memories of specific show moments or concerts or even like licks or whatever that are really memorable? Or I'm sure the president one is right up there. But that what? that's that's right up there. Okay, I'm going to tell one and I'm going to try and I'm going to... Be nice, John. I will shade it. So <laughs> our heroes were a band called Rosie O'Grady's Good Time Jazz Band. They played in, that was the name of the venue in Orlando, Florida. Okay. And uh, Rosie O'Grady's Good Time Emporium. Emporium, yes. So then these guys were monster players. They were so good. In the Dixieland realm, they were it. And they're 20 years older than you probably. 30, old enough to be our dads? Well, some of them. Andrew Fielding, their piano player, was not too much older than us. He was mid-20s. But prodigious, pro-level, studio quality. Yeah, exactly right, right. But, But for whatever reason, they were kind to us and they just were great. As a matter of fact, I, and I don't know how it happened. We'd have to ask Mark, but Mark started dating their band leader, Bill Allred, his daughter. Yeah. So, okay. <laughs> so we play this, we have this um, set there in front of 15,000 people. At the Big Spider Memorial Festival. At the Big Jazz Spider Memorial Festival, which is going on currently. Um, like right now. Yeah. So, um, so our big finish is Tiger Rag, and it's super fast, super loud, energy to just, mm-hmm. just kill, 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 Hysteria. kill. Hysteria, grand finale, yeah, and, yeah. and huge. Just so you get this eruption of a standing ovation, mm-hmm. right? Applause. Just incredible. Well, Rosie's is following us. They're coming on after we are. Arguably the best band in the United States oh, at the time. Oh, w- without question, without yeah. question. As we're coming up on stage. But we're leaving the stage. We're they're leaving coming the up. stage, and they're coming up. You're, you're basically the opener for them. We, yeah, we were the opener. Yeah, like that. Yeah, <laughs> he catches on quick. That's good. So Bill grabs Mark by the shirt, and he says, "I would rather follow." There's no other way to say yeah. it. Yeah. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, then follow you guys. That's what he said into Mark's ear as we passed. But it gets better. It gets so much better. Oh, man. So, so we're down by the side of the stage. Feeling look, pretty happy pretty, with ourselves. Look at, look at us. Bill smiles, and he calls the first tune, and it's Tiger Rag. Oh, no. And it's 20 clicks faster than what we did it. <laughs> and faster it's faster than we could clap our hands. And it's perfect. Perfect. It was his way of saying, you guys think you're pretty good, and you are, but we Watch own this, you. Watch this, kids. And, yeah. and we stood there. I remember this like 
And then we started applauding and laughing because it was like, we got owned and we're okay with it because these guys are the best. Yeah. Now the audience might think, oh, the jazz minor is the best, but but we knew. Well, what a cool thing for the audience because yeah. they're jazz fans. So yeah, 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 yeah. Catch that. It's kind of like yeah. playing like... Uh, I don't know what's like the big Beatle tune, like "Hey Jude," and then somebody else plays "Hey Jude," and it's like, "Well, we just heard this song." Yeah, yeah. yeah so they, the audience, I'm, that, I'm sure I'm there sure. were a lot of people in there who were just like, <laughs> well, <I'm>, "Okay, okay." <laughs> so, so we got it. Was it Bob who wrote the review that that nailed our, our over fat? So, you know, as we were going across, we played 69 gigs in 75 days. Is that right across I the country? Think so something like something that. something like that. Yeah. So a frantic pace, right? And and we would we would. Watch, watch for newspapers and jazz publications from where we had just been, right, yeah. to stoke our egos. And at one particular <laughs> juncture, I think we were in Iowa someplace, we read a review from where we had just been in Colorado somewhere, and the reviewer said, the jazz miners, yeah, they are over loud, over fast, and overrated. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> Talk about letting the air out of the balloon. And he was so right. I know. That's the funniest so thing. Right. I remember we were so up in arms. Like, how could he do that? How could he say that about us? Like, oh, no, he nailed it. That was about as charitable as he could yeah, be, right? He totally nailed it. Because there was always, there was this energy and excitement, but there was always this just, we were on the edge of catastrophe because yeah. the whole thing could come crashing down, you know? Yeah, and Mark and I were always blowing clams, you know? I mean, you know, it, it just it just didn't get it all right when you're playing right well beyond your, t your technical ceiling all the time. <laughs> oh and then you just gosh. accommodate by turning it up a little bit louder. Yeah, a little louder, a little faster. <laughs> oh, that's really funny. It makes me feel bad for musicians in this day and age who are getting it from their actual fans so they have a rough night or they're not feeling great and their fans are like hitting yeah. them. Oh, I, yeah. I'm just imagining you know hitting oh, yeah. them like well that was waste or who, who knows what but yeah I, mean, I want my money head, back that could get in your head as a musician yeah well and, like. and we were so fortunate because fortunately we we had we had enough enthusiasm and stuff to kind of make up for the all that other stuff yeah. but in addition these folks knew that this this is the next generation. So yeah. they were so supportive. Yeah. I mean, if we could have been terrible and they still would have yeah. clapped, you guys are the best. Yeah. You know, so we were we were fortunate. <laughs> Very yeah. fortunate. So you have done a better job than I of of contributing continuing to make the contribution to keeping the music alive. I mean, I just kind of got into a back eddy and played mostly in my living room and with Kelly and my kids and uh, occasionally with a little band in Wyoming and a little here and a little there, but you've stayed right in music for a long time. So talk to us about, I left the band and you, we knew we were going to go to work at Disneyland. And once I learned that, I realized I'm just, I can't do this anymore for quite a few reasons. So wait, let's pivot there and just wrap that up. So the band lands at Disneyland and kind of, well, it didn't land. We home. got back from the tour and we spent a year going up and down the West coast, trying to get into Disneyland. Okay. playing from Seattle to Sacramento and go down an audition and, and just trying to, and just banging. I don't remember the name of the guy at Disneyland that Rusty was and Tony were always hammering on. Uh, Sonny Anderson. Sonny Anderson. Yep. And I think we just finally exhausted him, and he said, okay, you're hired. I, I think okay. actually Tony Otten had a lot yeah, to do with it. Yeah, Tony that. got us in Ted, Tony had a lot Tony to and do Sherry yeah. are the unsung yeah. heroes in this little phenomenon. And, and that means hired as like the... Full time on park. Yeah, the, the 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 original contract was boy. It shows you how long ago they were. Disneyland was closed on Mondays and Tuesdays. Wow, is that insane? So um, it was uh, weekend during the summer. It was five days a week, and then during the off season, it was weekends and party nights. Mm -hmm. So it was 
you know, pretty much full time, pretty much year round. Yeah. Which was, you your, know, your contract. Yeah. It was, you know, crazy. And, and it's, you know, it was like, I don't know, $320 a week or something, which was yeah. more money than I ever, you know, yeah, could, sure. could believe. That's a career at that with, point, with, right? with full benefits. Yeah. yeah. A, real, a real job. Yeah. Real job. And I had, so when, when that was nailed down, Sacramento of 1978 must have been my last. Yes. My last gig. Yeah, because we went to the park. You, you, you guys went right to the park. And yeah. I had given notice like two months before that, guys, I'm leaving. And so they found Tim. Tim slipped over onto the trombone yeah. for a while before yeah. you found Seth Light yeah. to take the spot. To take the and, piano and I, spot. And I put you guys in a real bind, but I, I we figured two months two months was all the notice I could give you. Yeah. But you yeah. made it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it, it was... Like pulling a finger out of a five-gallon bucket of water, man. Well, and, and it's so fortunate that that sort of that Thurston pipeline, because Seth knew Tim from Thurston. Thurston High School. So it was just like, okay, find another Thurston musician that we can plug in here. It mm-hmm. worked all the time, so, wow. yeah. Oh, oh, you were going to talk about carrying music forward. Oh, forward, yeah. Okay. Oh, oh I, yeah. I, I, I really, the Dixieland anyway... Not not so much because there really just isn't much of it up here. I play gigs with, now, but in yeah. Southern California for how many years? Oh were you gosh! Playing? Well, it was so interesting because I had um, when I got to Disney, I had fairly recently made a commitment to the Lord, the mm-hmm. first time ever I had committed my life to Christ, and I started to feel like, okay, is the band first or is the Lord first? Mm-hmm. That was it was awkward. Re- oh, it was terrible. It was two and a half months of torture even my even my uh, pastors at church said are you sure about this is this really the lord telling you because disneyland's a great job and the lord wants you to work and I'm, i go it doesn't have anything to do with disney disneyland is a great job but i just felt like this is what i need to do you know you have time those, to make a change you need those moments so so i left in in uh, 80 and they it was so great she shows you how the lord works rusty was really not happy with this and sure. i told him i said hey Rusty, if this is really of the Lord, you're going to get a guy who's better than me. And Eric Messerschmitt showed, showed up. up. <laughs> <laughs> and after the rehearsal, Rusty went, oh, I see what you mean. <laughs> All right. Here's a big thing we like, overlooked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Here, here's the thing. About a year into the jazz minors, Rusty looked at John and said, John, you do great on the string bass, but uh, we need a tuba. Oh, so my here's gosh. a sousaphone. Really? Oh, sousaphone yeah, wraps around yeah. you. Here, I'm a classical string bass major, at the, string bass U, major U, at the U of O. And a rock and, and, and roll and playing electric, electric bass player. You want player. me to do what? Add another heavy instrument. Oh, okay. Wow. I'm, I'm, I'm not bright enough to say, are you crazy? Here's a sousaphone that was drugged behind a covered wagon coming west. Okay, see if you can get some music out of this, son. You never played a brass instrument in your life. So this this beautiful, beat-up old brass sousaphone, and I'm just starting out. I'm teaching myself, basically, and I just can't get a sound. I mean, I'm practicing and centering a tone. I'm thinking, is it really this hard to get that, you know, like, like Scott on the trombone, he's got right. that beautiful tone, and, and mine's just waffling. And eventually, right. after about two months, I kind of get it centered. Okay, it's, this is the best I've gotten stuff. So it needed to be repaired. Something broke or something. So I took it into the repair guy and jammed up all the way inside of it was a ski mask. 
<laughs> some some mom I forgot. Some mom must have said, "I can't take this anymore." The kid was practicing and jammed it. Damped a mask in there. So you know, you know how a batter comes into the batter's box and he puts the lead weight on there <laughs> yeah. to be heavy, you know, so that yeah. when he's up at there, that's what it was like. Yeah. I'd been pushing that thing for two months. That thing <laughs> popped out of there, and that horn roared. I, the first time I played it, it was, oh, oh my gosh, Breaking that's what windows. it's supposed to sound like. <laughs> so, so that was glorious to actually all that. of those all those months trying to get that and actually it's really great because for years in southern california after i left the band for a period of time and just played in christian groups and then through some interesting circumstances got back into playing dixieland and stuff um nobody called me for string bass or electric bass no no they called me for jazz tuba player yeah jazz so i'd play 200 gigs a year on jazz tuba and go guys i'm actually a string bass player oh you can play the bass and you can read Uh, you can play some vivaldi so so uh, john has been down here in roseburg playing in the pit orchestra when kelly and i've been singing the messiah oh like playing all the way through the whole messiah cantata on a string bass in in like all 12 major keys well the, the thing that got me on that that rehearsal for that is it's the main orchestra on about eight songs. The other 30 are like a sextet or a septet or something. Yeah. Nobody told me. Yeah. So we get through the first one, and, and I just sit down and sit like this, and they start into the septet. And uh, Jason looks Jason over at you. and goes, no, no, you're, you're playing too. I Stand went, up, brother. What? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, you're part of it. So I sight read that in yeah. that rehearsal yeah, that's all awesome. the way down, and it was, oh. Yeah. Yeah, so, no, John's a real string bass player, and you turned yourself into a real tuba player. Oh, got, got away from the sousaphone, got a nice, nice. And, and, and truly love playing the tuba. Oh, man, it's, playing, so, much, playing it's so much more expressive. Yeah. Come on, man. Play in Dixieland. And Eli Tuba. Newberger in the New Black Eagle Jazz Band, he was such a monumental oh, influence and, and, on all and of us. And Dave Gannett in and the Dave Rosie's Gannett. Band. Those yeah. are my two my two favorites. And they were just such, still are. They're both still playing. Yeah. How is, it, how is it more expressive than a, than a string bass well, or an electric bass? Well, here here's why. If you're playing string bass with a bow, like classically, then you can be very expressive because you can vibrato and all that stuff. But in... Jazz, you're just pluck, 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 boom, 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 boom. That's it. That that tone decays as soon as you hit it. So huh. there really isn't much oh, you can do with it's it. And, and it's not you're not supposed to. Like yeah. like Scott said, staying in your lane. Stay in it's the lane, man. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah. So, but tuba, you know, it's that beautiful. You can do anything. Yeah, that beautiful tone. And and like like Scott was saying, Eli Newberger was a very traditional player, but he was also a piano player, so he was very melodic. And but Dave Gannett played it more like an electric bass. He played like walking lines. Was in he he played All in the over. circus yeah. band for years. So he, of course he's going to have chops Play for, anything. for days. Mm-hmm. So so we were talking. You were talking about um, listening and learning songs and learning things like that. So there was a song that. Eli did called um, Cannonball Blues, oh, and he had just this amazing killer solo. solo. It was so great. So I just learned it note for note, ripped it right off. It was it was so cool. So we're playing in Sacramento, and we we had a reviewer. This wasn't that time, but it was a couple years later. And uh, the reviewer, when she wrote, she said something like, "On Cannonball Blues, John Brand had an uncanny grasp of melodic <laughs> delivery." <laughs> And I felt this big because <laughs> yeah. everybody in the band knew, and I knew that was Eli's, Eli's note solo. for note. That had nothing to do with me. Yeah, that's yeah. how music goes, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on. So, so back to your question about how is it more expressive? Instruments like that. So, so the word soul. 
right? So if it don't mean if a music has soul, I've learned under, I've learned to interpret that to mean if it can be heard as if it is the spoken word, yeah. if it can be or heard the in the context, word. yeah. Yeah, if it can be heard as if it's language, mm-hmm. it begins to have soul, which sort of speaks to a life, a real life, right? And, mm-hmm. and a tuba is all about that. Brass, clarinet, I mean, wind instruments yeah. uh, can be spoken through. Yeah. And yeah. so the whole contrapuntal thing of a front line sharing, sharing the the delivery of the of the of the piece yeah. is all about if it has soul, if you're speaking through your instrument, if there's questions and retorts and arguments and fist fights and <laughs> duets and all these things, it, it becomes I, I really thought about that, but it's true with the wind instrument. You're putting so much of your yep. actual like human energy Breath. like through yep. this machine yep. Yep. that, Breath. It, that yep. it would be logical for there to be more expressive because yeah. 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 you're, you're yeah. truly like yeah. all of you has to go into yeah. it. More range. Yeah. Of oh, that's neat. Um, now just so the listeners know, you did not make a career at, I'm guessing in the 80, 1980, you left the band Yeah, and, yeah. and from that point on, has music been kind of a, just a hobby or you, you had another career as well. So maybe kind of wrap that up. For yeah. The listeners. Yeah. The, the, I got out of music, like I said, because I felt like the Lord had other things for me to do. And I absolutely believe that by being faithful to doing that, mm-hmm. he said, it's kind of like Solomon. He multiplied I'm, you. I'm going to give you what I know you need, your your amazing wife, Bonnie, your three daughters, Abri, Brittany, and Hannah. But I'm going to give you that stuff that you thought you gave up. So from 92 to 2005, I was in a band that uh, averaged 340 gigs a year. Oh Think of that. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh. We played. We were the we were the house band at Universal Studios. We were we did almost all of Universal's corporate work. We did a ton of Disney's corporate work. We did forty weddings a year. We played the grand opening of Osaka Japan uh, Universal Studios, and we came back a couple years and played there. We wow. played corp. Yeah. So so it was so funny. But but in the interim that period when I got out of music, I got into at the beginning it was landscape. Um, maintenance when I just started out. And then through a series of events, I became a landscape estimator, went back to school, UC Irvine, and got my certificate in landscape architecture. So so I had this sort of dual thing going on where I would work, you know, four hours a day or six hours a day as a landscape estimator for big public works construction company. And then I'd go and play a gig, you know, and, and it was so funny because um, the band in 2001 got cut back way back 350 gigs to about 180 and so i uh i looked i hadn't done landscape estimating for nine years my looked saw an ad in the paper and went and applied and got a part-time they wanted full-time i wanted part-time they wanted to pay me this much i wanted this much and so it didn't wasn't going to work two days later the president company said well what if we meet you in the middle you can have the part-time but we'll pay you this and i went oh okay so i did that for a couple of years until we the gigs went back up again and so i gave my notice at the landscape construction company and they said well isn't it just for the summer that you're going to be gone i went yeah i go well well, why don't you come back wow so for three years i'd leave about june the landscape company about september 18th or something i'd come back sit down at my desk and start bidding work cool Yeah. yeah it was great maybe each of you take a shot at this question and assume there's a listener who's really interested in music and really talented and young and trying to make it a career and become world famous the way you guys were. Um, what? How do you advise that uh, that young guy or or gal to think about their future? My stock answer, first and foremost, is go to law school. 
or medical school. <laughs> That's my stock answer. Okay, no, no, no. Buy a set of Occidental nail bags and work yourself to death for a third of the money. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So you have to put in the work, which for us, we were really fortunate because we got to do it in a band setting, which was a lot more fun than sitting in a practice room practicing. So, but you have to do that. You have to get the playing in. So whatever, I would say play all genres because it increases the likelihood that you'll succeed. True. So you're practicing, you're playing, you're learning how to listen so that you're not, so many players, they're stuck on the music. They can't get off the music and you have to get off the music. Music's important. Meaning off the page, off off the the printed music. You have to be able to hear and play. So you do all of those things, you get better, better, better. You look for any opportunity to play that you can with any group. You, you stretch yourself. It's uncomfortable, but you do that as much as you can. I, I somewhere years ago, I wish I'd kept it. I wrote down, I did, it was almost going to be a, like a little course on the things to do that really have nothing to do with music to help ensure your success. And once you hear them, you'll, you'll be like, well, that's for everybody. You don't be on time, you be early. When you get there, you realize that every gig is an audition. The moment you get out of your car to the moment you get back in your car, you are being evaluated. Be helpful. If the if you're on a bandstand for the first time and the leader's putting band stands up something, help them. You know, be attentive. Listen. Dress well. Don't complain. Do the job to the best of your ability. Be positive. All of these things so that the band leader who doesn't really know you well, you got to be able to play. That's a given. But then they think, Mm. oh man, that guy was great. He helped me with this and he was on time and he did everything. So even if your musicality is two or three clicks below someone else on the bandstand, you can beat them. You'll get the call because the guy goes, no, I'd rather, rather than this headache and a great player, which they're all out there. I want this guy. That's, that's how I did it. I Mm. just made myself all of those things so people went oh yeah i'm going to call him he'll be he'll be good now the reality is being famous you there's not much you can do about that but there are plenty of opportunities to make a living at it you you have to be in southern california Chicago, you have to be willing to live where those opportunities, where those opportunities are and there there are tons of opportunities in southern california you know all of the amusement parks have music less than they did but they still all have music mm-hmm. rusty's still rusty's playing there at disneyland rusty is a key man for the disneyland yeah, yeah. entertainment yeah effort. yeah he, he puts that whole band together he's got like 20 musicians that he puts seven of them together every day for rusty's that still the real deal when yeah, it comes to yeah. music rusty yeah. is the oh, whole yeah. package does he play at disney yeah, also? yeah yeah he leads that band on trumpet what's and, the name of that band there well, they've changed their model a, a, a whole bunch of times. I don't know what that the name of that band is at this point in time. But it's like the Main Street, like nope, nope. It's the one that's out in New Orleans Square. It's the oh. actual one in New Orleans. So it's a Dixieland Jazz, which is you know that's the music of New Orleans. So it's specific. It's sort of a Dixieland Jazz band. It makes you think it's Dixieland Jazz. It's it's better. Is it better now? Yes, it's better. They, they changed from when the Miners were there, and it was an honest to goodness, no kidding band. 
to a model where they could cycle musicians on and different yeah. different instrumentation and everything, and it sort of made the people think they were listening to New Orleans music. But it, they had to accommodate, so there's a band there probably 24 seven, and and like Legos, like just yep. any combination yeah. Yeah. Yep. can every, play these every, songs. Every day out of that pool of 20, you yeah. know, he's got four tuba players and four banjo players, and you know, all yeah. like that. It's like okay, who's available? We plug this in, this and this. That's and, quite a puzzle. Yeah, Big no, it's time. it's it's hard work. So. Now the qu- same so question. So how, how to would me. you answer that? I- so so my experience with the miners was fabulous, and it shaped me. But I've always thought, and Mark was surprised to hear me say this. I feel like music cost me an education because I was at Oregon State, okay, and I did not spend one weekend on campus, not yep, one, yep. for two terms. I was in Eugene playing or performing or recording. Rehearsing. And I came to the brilliant conclusion that I didn't need an education because I was going to be a star, okay? <laughs> okay, and how many times have I looked back and thought, wow, that's really prescient, yeah. clear thinking, Wadsworth. Yeah, yeah. So, so, um, so my life's been great, but there have been plenty of times when I think, you know, I, sh- I should have hung with the engineering. I should have hung with the engineering. Whatever. Yeah. But so I would tell young people, you have to be realistic about music because it is a drug. Music is clearly addictive. It's clearly compelling. There's euphoria. There's, there, it's, just, it's just such a, never mind the applause. Holy smokes, if you actually get recognition, that's uh-huh. a whole nother level of compulsion, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And, and you get, frankly, to where you can't imagine living without it, okay? Mm-hmm. So your, your first answer is going to law school. Not a bad answer uh-huh. Uh-huh. because it's like woodwork. I mean, people love to do woodwork and make things, and they think they need to get a job as a cabinet maker, and pretty soon you're making boxes for 60 hours a week for 15 or 20 years, and you lose your love of working with wood. And I remember Rusty told me that Phil told him, man, play your music because you love it and get a different job, and you'll never stop loving the music. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And, and Rusty has said, you know, I should have listened to my dad yep. on that. So, so true. So be aware of that, young people. Um mm that you love the music and you can't imagine why life playing music would be anything except perfect, except then, darn it, the music turns into a job, okay? Mm-hmm. And so that is real. You can, you, can, you can set your clock by that. So think hard about another cash flow, another revenue stream that will make you a productive, reliable member of society and then keep playing music for love, and there's real value to that. Yeah, that's a great answer. We all know and the listeners know how being on stage and – the impact it's had on you, it yeah. probably really even just pointed you in the direction of like, okay, I can be in front of people and it's yeah. paying off now. And yeah. it, what about you? you? You were shy originally. You're not so shy now. <laughs> Do you, you attribute that? that to being on stage? Yeah, or, or yeah. gotta what, be. A- absolutely. You you lose you lose that fear, and uh, it it uh, boy, especially in the band when we were that age and that young with that much testosterone, it became. Um, what's the word, a challenge, something yeah. to, to overcome. So so we would many times go into a performance situation. The, the Bix actually was probably a pretty good one where it's like, we know we can crush this yeah. and and we're going to do it. <laughs> yeah. You know, nobody's going to get in our way. Yeah. We are just going to destroy this crowd. <laughs> it became an athletic event. Yeah, it really did. And and there's there's all kinds of n- negative to that. Oh. There's all oh. that that kind of yeah. hubris and and stuff. Yeah. But boy, when you're young and you're in a situation like that where all these other bands have way more experience, they're 
yeah. way better players, if you want to really be honest. They were just better players, yeah. except for Rusty and Brad. Yeah. We didn't stack up against any of them no, in the rest no, of the No, no, they were all much better than us. But we just knew what we could do, and we knew what As we had done before to an audience, and we were just immensely yeah. confident that that's what we were going to do, and we went out and did it. And that's why you get the over-loud, over-fast, over-rated <laughs> comments, yeah. people who could see through it and kind of go, yeah, you guys are kind of full of yourself. And they were right. They were so right. We, we may do this again sometime, because we didn't even talk about the reunion phenomenon and getting oh, back gosh. together after 30 years that and playing so and what that well, was if, like. For you listeners, if, so if you want to hear that whole story, well, we'll probably give it to you whether you want it or not. Yeah. So I'm not yeah. asking. I'm telling. Yeah. It's Nate's podcast. He'll <laughs> um, do what he wants. But the... Two more comments. Um, first of all, spe- thinking of young kids who are interested in music, you know, separate from whether they're going to make it a whole career, I'm just thinking how valuable it is for kids who are teenagers or young adults to be kind of focused on something. Yep. Yep. You know what I mean? Like whether yep. it could be skateboarding, it could do? be yep. building computers, but just having some place to yep. dump that energy yep. that's that's not harmful yep. is yep. itself good because being idle and kind of what should we do? It, that usually doesn't lead to anything great. No, right usually bad. And so bad. maybe if you're a young guy into music, just keep your expectations low. It might not, you might not become the next, you know, <laughs> Lady Gaga or whoever you want to be. <laughs> first yeah, there's not many guys that, I could think of. Not many guys ever play the Super Bowl, but that's so. Yeah, only, those, that's only football players you ever think of. And that's right? yeah, and that's besides the point. There's yeah. other reasons to do yeah. it besides yeah. that. Yeah. And then the second thing that I was thinking of, I watched this documentary a while ago about kind of aging punk rockers and they it interviews them and they kind of all didn't plan for being fathers and adults yes and then they kind of thought they'd die by then yep and then now they are to kind of think and still having to be on the tour yep. and that's oh. not that great and and one i think kind of the thesis of the documentary was saying you know we were wanting to kind of change this just really change a topic i shouldn't have gone here but we were wanting to change the world and thinking the world is messed up and that's what the music was about and and we should have just realized that being fathers and our family is gonna is way more effective at that. The documentary was called The Other F Word. It was really great. Mm-hmm. And I just loved it. And it's it, it I was thinking about that because yeah, yeah. as young energetic musicians doing these things and expectations, you know, yeah. life kind of goes in different ways. But obviously those that those years in the band were just bedrock type of formative. Like, formative informative yeah. yeah. years. And, and and let me just say this on our way out the door. It has been um it's been just an unhoped for blessing to end up back in the same part of the world as you yeah. and be able to overlap once in a while and occasionally play a gig and yeah. see each other and yeah. and yeah, have moments like this. I mean, it's so blessed. Yeah, I, I, it would be nice if more of the the guys were here because mm-hmm. we would do more things together. We would do more. We things. were we really were like brothers, you know, because yeah. you in spent all way. your time time together and you experienced success together and being on the road together. Yeah. So yeah, there's that, that, building that you know the hard work. Yes, putting in all yeah. Those no, absolutely. You're yeah. absolutely and right. And fighting like brothers, and then having the the conquest, which is what some con- concerts were, with a conquest, yeah. and auditioning at Harrah's Lake Tahoe, and auditioning at Disney World, and yeah, it was it was a remarkable, yeah, a we remarkable just, we period of time. We did it all together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah. that was the that was the, the the nicest thing is it's not just one; it's seven. And, yeah. and Dale is gone now. Yeah. And, and so that has changed the dynamic. Yeah. He's got, It'll never be the same. It will never, it, the opportunity to get back together the way we did is gone. Yeah. And that makes me appreciate this interview with you today yeah. even more. Yeah. Well, thanks, John, for coming. This has been Glad just to. so cool. We're going to put a, some video and links on the 
notes in YouTube. So we'll we'll kind of direct you if you want to see and hear more of the whatever you said. There's something on Facebook, one of these videos. Or... Yeah, yeah, from the from the trip to the White House. Oh, okay. It's it's, uh, it's pretty good. We'll collect yeah. all that and put it there. I'm gonna go check it out as well. But um, let's do it again. We'll have you back and talk about landscaping and and then the the reunion tour. Yeah. And thanks again for coming in. Glad to do it. Thanks, guys.
yes, I'm blue But I just won't I won't be blue always For that sun's got to shine Got to shine In my back door someday My back door someday Trouble in mind Yes, that's true True And I have almost lost my mind My life just ain't worth living And I feel like I could just die Feel like I could die
Mm-hmm.